morning. I'm grateful uh, that you have come out here uh, in the midst of the cold to uh, learn from God's Word. For those of you who are uh, tuning in at home, it's good to have you uh, with us also. And uh, this morning we're going to continue our study through the New Testament book of Romans. We've been at this since May of last year, and we have learned a whole lot about who we are and who God is. We have learned uh, about the utter holiness of God. We have learned about the the pervasiveness of of sin in our own lives and in the lives of, of the balance of humanity, sin which earns us God's wrath, Uh, Sin which makes it impossible for us to earn God's acceptance through our own efforts, no matter how hard we try. And we've learned of God's grace, which provides the only means in which we can come in, in right relationship with the Lord. It is a grace that has been earned on our behalf through Jesus's sinful life, which fulfilled God's perfect law. It's a grace that has been earned through his sacrificial death, which paid the penalty for uh, all the sins that you and I and the balance of humanity have uh, committed. And most recently, as we've worked our way through Romans 9 and 10, we have uh, carefully examined uh, two truths that seem to be opposed to one another, but which in, in God's word are happening at the same time. Uh, We've learned about God's election, this process where the God of the universe in eternity past chooses those who will be saved based solely on his perfect will and his perfect mercy, having absolutely nothing to do with what we've done in the past, what we're doing now, or, or something that we will ultimately do in the future. Yet we've also learned that we as human beings, we have responsibility uh, that, that we are all responsible, completely responsible, uh, whether we reject Jesus in our pride and arrogance or apathy, or whether we receive Jesus in faith as Lord and Savior in humility and contrition and gratitude. And trying to wrap our heads around those two truths, God's election over here and human responsibility over there, uh, has been a challenge. We know they're clearly articulated in Scripture. We know those two things exist at the same time. Uh, yet it's hard to, to make these things work together. And it has required us to trust that, that God is both just and at the same time that he's merciful. It's required us to, to take his word at face value it's required us to, to humble ourselves, to, uh, to realize that, that we don't know everything, that we don't understand everything, that our, that our minds are, are limited, and we are trying to figure out this, this infinite God. And, and just because we simply don't understand something, or because we don't necessarily agree with that something, doesn't make any of it less true. And so over the last 12 months, folks, we have delved into a ton of theology. And as we enter into chapter 11 of the book of Romans, Paul is starting to to wrap up the theological portion of his letter. And uh, once we get through chapter 11 and get into 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, it is going to get extraordinarily practical. 
It's going to talk about, hey, you've learned all of these things in, in the first 11 chapters. Now, how do you actually live them out as Christians in the balance of his word? But here's the struggle that I had. As I, I read through uh, chapter 11, and, and I understand what it says, and I'm just like, I could not bring myself to, to spend a, a, another weekend dealing with theology, folks. I want to get to application. And, and so as I read through this and I prayed through this, uh, I, I'm, I'm praying that it's from the Lord. He, he downloaded some stuff to me that, of, of how we can actually apply some of these things. Because if you look at Romans 11 on the surface, it's all about what happens to the people of Israel. That's what it's all about. It's all about, hey, these folks have rejected me. They've rejected my son. Uh, have they, are they still my chosen people? Is there a future for them? And it deals with some of that. And undoubtedly, over, the next, uh, over next week and the following week, we will deal with some of that. But, but this week, I want to deal with a pressing issue in our culture right now, in our lives right now, and something that's been pressing really forever. And what it is is this. Can you and I actually trust God? I believe when we look at, at chapter 11, that, that's the underlying question that, that is coming through here, is can we actually trust God? And with every passing day, this world gets crazier and crazier. It gets more and more dangerous and more and more hostile to Christianity. As Lisa prayed uh, in her prayer, you have this incredibly insane war that is going on in the Ukraine. And I remember growing up as a, a little boy, my, my, uh, both of my grandfathers were, were, were in World War II. My uh, grandpa, Leonzo, uh, he was in the Army Air Corps. He was stationed in India. He was a, a military police officer, so he didn't see really any combat. But, but my grandfather, Baker, uh, my mom's mom, uh, Simon Baker, uh, he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, he was uh, shot in, in the back of the legs. He was taken to a, a German prisoner of war camp. He, he languished there uh, untreated for four months before that prisoner of war camp was, was uh, liberated. And I remember the devastating effects that, that, that uh, occurred in his life. And uh, when my grandma passed away, my granddad passed away at 56, but when my grandma Baker passed away, uh, I, I got all of the, the scrap, you know, the newspaper clippings and things like that. And as I read through them, and especially uh, before the war really even began, uh, you could see very similar patterns to what's going on right now. You know, in 1938, all of a sudden the Germans are, are starting to see how far they can go. And, and the world kind of is watching and kind of letting it happen. And, and now here we are at the same time, and it just seems so kind of eerily uh, like deja vu that, that are, are we moving into something that's going to be much greater than, than anything that we can possibly imagine? So here we are living in this culture right now. Can I actually trust God in the midst of this? We've got unfettered inflation going on. I filled up my little white 2003 Honda the other day at the sheet station, and it cost me a kidney to pay for that thing. 
And it's incredibly expensive. We have confusion over sexuality and gender in our culture. There are continued racial challenges. There is this erosion of religious liberties. And there is outright hostility to people of faith. And the list goes on and on. And in the midst of the insanity and confusion and uncertainty, and if we're honest, in the midst of fear, I believe that is the temptation for many people, even me, myself at times, to begin to question God. God, are you really in control? Can I trust you with what you have written in this book? And more than anything else, can I actually just even trust you? And and that's the question I want to attempt to answer today as we work our way through the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 11. And the question is this, can I trust God? So let's get started. you have a Bible with you, open up to Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. You can fire up your little Bible app if you've got that. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Actually, we'll start in verse 21 of chapter 10. And if you're able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word. Romans 11, we'll start in verse 21 of 10. But of Israel, he says... All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here in chapters 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul has been trying to explain why the vast majority of the Israelites of his day, those who were supposed to be God's chosen people, had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And in the the process of of trying to explain all of this, to explain their, their rejection, he posed and then very carefully answers a series of questions. He asks questions like, well, did God's word 
fail? Is this why they're not part of the kingdom of God? Uh, was God unjust? Has he treated them wrong? Uh, has God lied? And every time he goes back into the Old Testament text, which is their Bible of their day, and he begins to answer these questions. Is as we get to the end of chapter 10, after explaining how the Gentiles have come to faith in Jesus in such great number and how the vast majority of the Jews have rejected Jesus, Paul says these words, which he takes from the mouth of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. He says this, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul after telling his audience in the preceding verses that the Gentiles had found God even though they weren't looking for him and that God had shown himself to the Gentiles even though they weren't interested, he then says of the Israelites, of his chosen people, he says, I reached out to you, but you didn't want anything to do with me. Now many of us know exactly how that feels. How many of us have a loved one, a spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling, who we constantly reach out to and reach out to and reach out to, and they constantly reject us and reject us and reject us. And to make matters worse, not only do they, they reject us, but they reject the things that, that have been taught to them over the years, and, and they begin to, to destroy their lives by making horrific decisions. And despite all of our best efforts, despite all of the things that we pour into them, these individuals, they, they rebuff us time and time again. And each time, it hurts a little bit more. And then, after so many hurts, there comes a point where we simply want to write them off where we simply want to kick them to the curb, where, where we simply want to cast them aside and reject them like they have rejected us. And it's only human to feel that way. So it's not surprising that in the very first verse of Romans chapter 11, Paul asked the question that was most probably on the minds of everyone in his audience. And it's this. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, the Israelites? Perhaps that's what happened. Perhaps God's like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And they've pushed me back time and time again. Perhaps God was so tired Perhaps he was so incredibly frustrated. Perhaps he was so worn out from being constantly rejected by the Jews that he simply did to them what they were doing to him. And that was reject them. And if that was the case, then it would be perfectly justifiable for God's character to be called into question regardless of what Israel had done, because God had made unilateral promises. He had made promises to them that were not based on anything that they needed to do. 
He had promised to, to make them a great nation, to give them a land, to protect them, to care for them, to prosper them, to never leave them or forsake them, and ultimately he promised to give them a savior. He promised all of that, and if he rejected them because they rejected him, what does that say about his character and his trustworthiness? If all of those promises were based not on their performance, but on God's goodness. And so what Paul does is after he asks this question, he gives a very definitive answer, and this is what he says. By no means. Paul wants his readers to know, and he wants us to know, with absolute certainty that God can be trusted to be faithful to his promises regardless of how unfaithful his people might be. And then he goes on to give them what I believe are three reasons why they, and more importantly, you and I, can trust God. And we find the very first reason at the end of verse 1. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. You see, the first reason that Paul gives that why God can be trusted is from his own experience. You see, you and I, we can trust God because what he has done for us in the past and what he has done for us now and what we can be confident that he will do in the future. You see, Paul's logic is really simple. God didn't reject the Jews. Why? Because he didn't reject me. I mean, Paul is, he's the consummate Jew, and he lays it all out right there. He says, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the, the tribe of Benjamin. It doesn't get any more Jewish than that. Paul is like the poster boy for being Jewish. And so he lays it out right there. He says, you can trust God that he hasn't abandoned the Jews because he has saved me. But what's even more amazing about this is if there was ever a Jew that didn't deserve to be saved by God, it's Paul. Prior to his encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul, whose name at the time was Saul, he was a, a, a Jewish Pharisee. He was one of the, the most powerful rulers in the entire nation of Israel. But more than that, he, he was the self-appointed protector of the Jewish faith. He had taken it upon himself to, to protect what the Jews believed. He was absolutely convinced that Jesus was a false messiah. And back in the first century, there were tons of, of false messiahs that were running around because the nation was in turmoil. All kinds of people were claiming that they were the Messiah. And, and, and Paul saw Jesus as just another one of those false messiahs. And then, not only did he see that as a threat, but he saw all of these followers who have lined themselves up behind Jesus. He sees them also as a threat. So he makes it his personal mission to destroy Christianity. And so, he is there 
when the first Christian, Stephen, is killed for their faith. And listen to how the physician and historian Luke describes Paul, whose name at the time was Saul in Acts chapter 8. He says this, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. He entered house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul, Paul, was a monster. He was an Adolf Hitler, a Stalin, a Lenin, Saddam Hussein, or Vladimir Putin. That, that, that's the kind of people that he was like. And he was even on his way to have Christians arrested in the Syrian town of Damascus when he encounters the risen Christ. And if anyone deserved to be rejected by God, it was Paul. Yet rather than reject him, God redeemed him, gave him a new name, and put him on a mission not to destroy Christianity, but ultimately to build up Christianity. So when people wanted to know if God had rejected the Jews, and along with that rejection had jettisoned all of the promises that God had made to them, when people wanted to know if God was no longer faithful to his word, Paul simply looked at himself and said, absolutely not. My friends, if we have confessed our sin and received Jesus Christ in faith, we can do the exact same thing. When things are not going our way, when the world is a very, very scary place, when our losses are great and our grief is even greater, when our sins and, and failures are, are causing us to doubt, when it seems like God simply cannot be trusted, we need to look no further than ourselves to see God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. Let's think together for a moment about who we were and what we were doing prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to bet it was not a pretty picture. Back then, what kind of sin were we into? What kind of brokenness were we living in? What kind of brokenness were we inflicting upon other people in our lives? What kind of, of false confidence did we have in our, our seemingly good works that we pridefully possessed? And despite all of that, despite all of the messiness of, of, of our pre-salvation life, God chose us and he sent his one and only son directly in our path through another human being so that we might receive Jesus in faith, 
have our sins washed pure as snow and our souls sealed by the shed blood of Jesus for all eternity. You see, make no mistake about it. God is trustworthy and faithful. And as Christians, despite what is going on in the presence, all we have to do is take some time to reflect on our own lives, to be reminded about how faithful God has been to us in the past. All it takes is a few moments of self-reflection. I look into my own life. I think about how God was so kind to me to, to give me an incredible wife. I think about his goodness in, in, in providing this church family and, and these facilities and, and the opportunities that, that we get to, to share here at Living Water. I mean, how can I possibly doubt the goodness of God? even when all kinds of other crazy stuff is going on. When people are dying, when friends are betraying, when, when finances aren't good, or whatever things might be happening in our lives. How can we doubt God's goodness when we take the time to look back to see the things that he has actually done in our lives? All of that makes me think of the Apostle Paul's words in his second letter to the young pastor Timothy, which he wrote while he was in prison in Rome awaiting death. This is what he said. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endured everything for the sake of the elect, but that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You see, it doesn't matter the circumstances of our life. May it be the chains of a filthy first century Roman prison, the death of a loved one, an unexpected medical catastrophe, the failure of a relationship, the loss of a job, the, the unrelenting pressure of, of seemingly perpetual money problems are just a bad day. Even when we are faithless in the midst of that, even when it feels like God has completely given up on us, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. But being reminded of what God has done in our lives isn't the only way that we can reaffirm God's trustworthiness. We can also trust God because he is always, always, always at work behind the scenes. Look again at Romans 11 verses 2 through 4. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, 
Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him, Paul says? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, there have been plenty of times in the past where God's people thought that he was untrustworthy. And the account of Elijah that Paul refers to us here, which is recorded in 1 Kings 18 and 19, was one of them. Now, for those of you who don't know what happened to uh, Elijah, let me give you a, just a little background quickly. Uh, we, we find uh, Elijah in uh, the accounts of what happened in his life in, in the, the book of, of 1 Kings was written uh, some 800, the events occurred some 850 years before Jesus uh, was born. And uh, at that time, the northern kingdom of the Jewish people, which was called Israel, it was in a bad way. They had, uh, they had a really bad king. His name was Ahab. He's dreadful. And he led the entire nation into idol worship. Everybody he led into idol worship. And specifically, he led them into the idol worship of this false god by, by the name of Baal. And uh, the worship of Baal was horrific. It involved uh, all kinds of perversion, prostitution, homosexuality, immorality, sexual promiscuity, even to the point of child sacrifice. That was the worship of this false god. And God had, had called faithful Elijah to confront Ahab. And so Elijah, he, he does just that. He, he, he goes to Ahab and he confronts them and, and basically he, he puts down like a, a, a challenge. He says, let's see who, whose god is, is really true and really powerful. You have your god, Baal. I have my god, Jehovah. Let, let's, have a, let's have a sacrificial battle and see what happens. And, and so Ahab gathers together 450 priests. Now you think about that. There's 450 priests that, that, that gather together, and, and they, they cut up a bull into all kinds of little pieces. They gather together all of this dry wood. They, they make a sacrificial pyre. They put all of the, the cut-up meat uh, on top of the pyre, and uh, the, the prophets, these 450 prophets, they begin to pray to Baal. And they pray, and they pray, and they pray, and they're asking for him to rain down fire from the sky. And, and no matter what they do, nothing happens. And, you know, Elijah, he must have been like the... Uh, you know, the irritating little brother in the brood when he was growing up. Because Elijah, he begins to taunt the prophets. And uh, here's, we get a little record uh, of what he says here. He cries out and he mocks them. He says, cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing, he's off thinking, or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey, or perhaps your God is asleep 
and must be awakened. I mean, there's sanctified trash talk if I've ever seen it there. You did really good because in my notes it says, pause for that elusive living water laughter is what I wrote here. You see, nothing works for these prophets. And so Elijah says, well, it's my turn. So he does the same thing. He takes a bull, cuts it all up into pieces, gathers together some wood. He throws the meat on top of of the wood. and, And then he goes and he doubles down a little bit. And he digs a trench around the wood. And he takes gallon upon gallon upon gallon of water and pours it all over the sacrifice to make sure that there was nothing earthly that could possibly cause this thing to ignite. And then he prays to God. And God rains down fire from heaven. It consumes the meat. It consumes the fuel or the wood. It consumes the dust on the ground. And it consumes all of the water. And everyone's blown away. And Elijah is emboldened. He is so emboldened that he tells the Israelites, you need to kill these 450 prophets of which they do. And it is a great victory for God and a high point in Elijah's spiritual life. I mean, it doesn't really get much better than that, right? You pray to God that he would rain down fire from heaven, and it's never happened in my life. I haven't got a sparkler, a match, nothing. I mean, spiritual high point. But Ahab has a wife. Her name is Jezebel. Now, I thought about that for a minute. I thought, I have never, ever run into a Jezebel. I think that probably is not high on the baby name list in the books that they sell. But Jezebel is a bad woman. And uh, Jezebel is not happy that Elijah has told the Israelites, to kill these 450 priests. So she basically puts a bounty on his head, and he flees for his life. Now think about this. He goes from this incredible high to this incredible low. One minute he's, he's all the bomb, the next minute he's fleeing into the woods for his life. Now his circumstances have changed. He feels like he is all alone, that every Israelite on the face of the planet is worshiping false gods. He's the only one who's remained faithful. He's going to die at the hands of Jezebel. And so he has this little pity party for himself. And he cries out to God. And he says this, I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed all your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I mean, he's terrified. Super high, incredible low. And here's how God replies to Elijah. After telling him to stop hiding, God says this, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
You see, on that day, Elijah learned a very important truth. God is always at work, behind the scenes, always working for his glory and ultimately for our good. You see, before the prophets of Baal, Elijah experienced God's faithfulness as he worked in the supernatural. Now, alone in the wilderness, fearing for his life, Elijah experiences God's faithfulness in the unseen. And although he was alone and although he thought God had forsaken him, little did he know that God had created a remnant, a small group of faithful people that loved God just as much as Elijah did. And in many of our lives, that is what has happened to us. That, 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 that we have been going through life, life is good, all of a sudden curveball comes, things are horrific. And we think that God has dumped us, that he doesn't love us, that he doesn't care about us. And it's a dark time for a period. But if you're a child of God, he is at work behind the scenes, moving, adjusting, adapting, creating things for his glory and ultimately for our good. And I have seen that so, so many times in the life of this church. I have watched people go through horrible divorces, deaths, illnesses, loss of income. And it's like, God, have you dumped me? Do you not care about me anymore? And God is working behind this, and, and it may take a month, it may take a year, it might be 10 years. It could be up to the very end point of your life. But God is at work. He's working behind the scenes, proving himself to ultimately be faithful. And so Paul reminds his readers, and he reminds us, so too at the present, that there is a remnant that has been chosen by grace. You see, God hadn't rejected the Israelites because uh, there were Jewish men and women who, who had not yet come to faith in Jesus, but who were going to. And they were going to come to faith in Jesus through the faithfulness of Paul preaching the gospel. And each one of them would be chosen by grace. And there are many times when we think that we are all alone, when we think we are the only one in our family who is living for Jesus, the only one in our, our school or our workplace or our neighborhood. And because of that, we think that God has left us all alone, that he has abandoned us in, in, in the presence of this present darkness. But the fact of the matter is we are not alone. He has been, is, and will forever be working on our behalf and there will always be a time where he shows himself faithful. Now there's a third and final reason that we can trust God, and it's found in verse 5 and expanded in verse 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace... It is no longer based on works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And as I read that, what came to my mind was this, that we can trust God 
because his grace is far superior to our works. Where does this remnant come from? How did they find approval from God? Was it because of what they did? Did they have some kind of special knowledge about Jesus? Were they accepted by God through the the good works that they were seeking to do? No, we're told what? They're chosen by grace, not approved by works. And as we have learned over these last six weeks, God in eternity past chose his remnant, and just like he chooses every other Christian who comes to faith in Jesus. Not through looking in the future to see some kind of merit in them, but rather simply through his grace, not through the work of anybody else. And because, as Paul says in verse 6, if we've got to do a work to get grace, it's not grace. And if you and I want to grow in our confidence in the trustworthiness of God, the best place to start is by ratcheting down our confidence in our works as a means of earning God's favor. When we falsely believe that it is our good deeds that justify us before God, and we fall into doing these good deeds, or in the end, doing bad deeds, it ultimately brings us only one thing, and that's despair. And as we look around at the mess that our sin has created us, we say to ourselves, how can God possibly forgive me? And the moment we do that, we begin to forget God's trustworthiness. You see, it is so easy when when God doesn't seem to be around to take matters into our own hands and to try to figure out ways to solve our problems all by ourselves. And we have these little conversations in our head, right, with whoever is the issue or the problem or whatever. We have these conversations, this is how I'm going to deal with this, this is how I'm going to adjust this or whatever. And the reality is none of our works are sufficient in any of that. And so we need to step back and trust that God is going to work in the midst of whatever circumstance that, that is there. Because if we care about it, he cares about it even all the more. And it's his grace that is far more powerful than any of our works. In Psalm 103, we read this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove the transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That is the faithful God. He's the one who is at work at all times. He is the one who doesn't repay us according to our sin, who removes our our sin as far away from us as the heavens are separated from the earth. That's the God that we serve. And we can be confident that he is always, always trustworthy, even 
in those darkest times in our lives, when we take a moment to look back at what he has done for us in the past, we look at how he has been working behind the scenes forever, and we come to understand that his grace is so much more powerful than any of our works. Let's pray together. Lord God, would you forgive us for those times that we doubt you. Lord, you have proved yourself to be faithful time and time again, and, and yet, Heavenly Father, when, when things that just one time don't go our way, dear God, we tend to think that you are, are not at work, that you don't care, that you're not going to deliver us, that you're not going to provide for us, but the fact of the matter is, Heavenly Father, that you are at work for your glory and for our good. Help us to be a people that cling to these truths. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time that we could study your word. And now, Heavenly Father, as we prepare to uh, respond uh, to your word through the giving of our tithes and offerings, uh, Lord God, we ask that, uh, Lord, you would bless those who, who give, that, Lord, you would provide for those who desire to give and who struggle to do so. Lord, thank you for those who Lord, give online, who uh, give through the mail, for those who will give uh, in the midst of this room and the offering now. And Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this amazing church family that you have created. We pray for the other churches in our community, Heavenly Father, that are seeking to proclaim your gospel. And through your son's name we pray, amen.